0: Mike Green, I'm here in Las Vegas at the Wynn. We're here for EQ Derivatives Conference. And I've got Chris and Harley. This is a reprise of an interview that we did, guys, I mean, believe it or not, four years ago, five years ago now, it feels yeah. like. Um, first, it's fantastic to have everybody back in, in person. I mean, it, we're in a phenomenal suite here right now, but the, the, the ability to sit down with many of our peers in person for the first time in about three or four years has been really great. And... What I was hoping to get you guys to chat about is some of the stuff that we were chatting briefly on the panel yesterday, but like what in the world is actually going on in the volatility space? Because we're struggling with hedging dynamics in this environment. I know you're struggling with it as well. This feels radically different than anything that we have seen in a while. Chris, the the closest analogy I can draw is to the fourth quarter of 2018 in terms of the way the markets feel like they're behaving, where you're just not getting that you know, cleansing plunge from, you know, a VIX spike sort of thing feels like something sitting out there supplying vol to the market. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think there's, uh, it's pretty interesting because I think if you look at it uh, just this past month, for example, um, you had a situation where you had a down 4% day in the equity market and down 1% day. And if you looked at fixed strike vols, which are, you know, the vols of the S&P 500 by strike price, they were actually down week Mm -hmm. over week. So if you had told me that you have two days like that and fixed rate balls would be down, that, that, that's actually quite shocking. But it has happened before in, in different periods in market history. Um, and I think one of the things is there's a couple, there's not one factor in my view that's driving that necessarily, the underperformance of equity vol. It's been very frustrating because clients invest in vol and then you're not getting a payout in equity ball. You're getting a payout in commodity vol, you're getting a payout in currency vol and rate vol, but you're not getting the payout in equity ball. Um, one aspect of that is simply this concept that the market has been hedged. People came in with a lot of hedges t- coming into this year. And so one of the things that's really uh, interesting, um, you know, I have a, uh, or y- you look at a house that you might buy in Miami on the water, and you've got to, uh, insure that against a hurricane. Um, okay. So you buy hurricane insurance, and... The fact that you own hurricane insurance does not affect the probability of a hurricane. But the truth is that it doesn't work that way in financial markets. When people buy more insurance, it actually reduces the probability of the event happening based on the dealer flows and the monetization of, that, of, of those hedges. What's most interesting about this is that the biggest risk to markets usually occurs after that first drop when everyone has monetized their insurance that's when the market is most exposed that's when the hurricane can punch back in the biggest way and generally you'll see that first move down in markets and then when there when everyone monetizes when there is that if if there happens to be another systemic leg that causes Um, Some sort of solvency event Then you have that second big leg down. So an analogy to this I actually think is interesting about 2007 In 2007 and I'm not necessarily saying that we're gonna get an OA collapse, but I'm I'm using this as kind of a analogy in 2007 the market dropped 20% from the end of 2007 to July 2008 Mm -hmm. At that point, people were tired of hedging, and the VIX over that period of time just fluctuated between 20 to 30. At that point, you then had the solvency crisis that occurred in the banking system right when everyone was not predominantly hedged or had monetized most of their hedges. And that led that second major leg down. And there was incredible vol persistence at that point. And we'll talk more about that later I want to give Harley a chance to speak a little bit here so well
0: before, before we do that Harley I, I one of these things that is actually interesting in how deeply you've gotten inflation wrong is <laughs> Um,
2: is that you groveling trying to go and change history mid-sentence?
0: Not at all. So, your,
2: your inflation product has yeah, not
0: gotten it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cannot wait. talk about tickers, guys. Okay.
2: Let's yeah. talk about, about, about your inflation that. call <laughs> for transitory yeah. uh, last November
0: so in the scheme those guys. that like, life
2: is transitory, right? Yes, exactly.
0: No, I was very specific. I said the end of 22, but we'll see how it plays out. So. The, the, the point that I would actually make, though, is during that period, exactly at that point, is when we began to encounter forces very similar to what we're seeing right now, which is this bizarre confluence of rising commodity prices and an economy that is clearly slowing. Right? I mean, It was very obvious to everybody in 2007, we'd already seen the housing market rollover, which accounts for a disproportionate uh, fraction of economic activity in one form or another. And unemployment was already rising in that environment. The drag, I I still remember I was at Canyon Partners and one of my colleagues, uh, Josh Donfeld, wrote a a piece internally highlighting the tax that was being extracted on consumers from the extraordinary increase in oil prices that we were seeing. And he 100% nailed it. And at that point, it was like, wait a second, this is completely obvious. Everybody's about to fall apart, right? But exactly to Chris's point, that was basically a pause. And then we rallied in just a, an exhausting way. It feels like something like that could very well be in play right now.
2: Before I get to the question of inflation, let's go and push back a bit on Chris's notion here of over hedged, under In the exchange option market, which is what you're talking about, it's a closed system. You're buying it from someone else. So the vol is in the system. Now, an example of being outside the system is when the Fed bought X gazillion mortgages, yeah. so, and the Fed doesn't hedge, so therefore they effectively sold X um, you know, hundreds of billions of two-year, three-year options on 10-year rate and depressed volatility. But to the extent that retail is buying it from you know, Susquehanna or Citadel, you know, what you're kind of saying theoretically is that Citadel is a much better hedger than retail, and therefore there is a net gamma in the, in the in the trade. But I'm not quite convinced of that. Like the, the pundits that put out these these charts every day about the gamma exposure on the street, that's that's just someone who's getting paid a salary to go and fill space every day. Okay, because I can assure you, Susquehanna and Citadel and everyone else, the big market makers, they're delta hedging along the way. They're just doing it in a much more smooth, systematic, algorithmic way, as opposed to a retail trader or Probably some hedge fund trader, truth be told, who's going to go hit the panic button at the bottom and and dump out his delta? So I, I, I'm not a big buyer of this idea um, that 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 the location matters that much. I'm I'm more interested in the level of vol being the driver because the level of vol actually matters. The higher the vol, starting to get geeky in everybody here. The higher the vol, the lower the gamma, and therefore the less sensitivity to market movements. So, in that sense, when you have very high vols, that kind of you know will reduce the market lower well, at the money gamma, but
1: yeah, but side gamma increased. But you know, Harley, the, it's the, interesting because the, so the gamma is lower no matter what. I, I do agree. I do agree with you on this. I, I do think, like, especially in the derivatives community, there's been so much. And boy, like, God forbid you say this on Twitter, you'll get your head ripped off. So I'm like terrified to even say it here. But you know the the framework being, at the end of the day, that uh, there's so much talk about dealer positioning, and I almost think a myopic view that that's the only thing that drives option, option markets and markets themselves. I think that dealer positioning, which is what we're talking about, is you know, the negative gamma, the Vanna exposure, the skew. That, that element is part of the interesting mosaic of markets, and it does have, I believe, a temporary impact on the liquidity but I think the myopic view on that is so that you think dealers are dumber than retail. Well, no, I, I think dealers are they're dumber playing. than hedge funds. At, no. a certain, at a certain point, there needs there is a fundamental reality that comes into play, which you know one aspect is liquidity, and some people say that hey, equity vol is only liquidity. I disagree, and the dealer the the dynamics ex, uh, looking at dealer exposures are measuring to some degree liquidity. But what, what I think the, the, the thing that that myopic view doesn't recognize is the fact that, hey, there is a real world, and credit solvency is the other component of this. And the Federal Reserve interacts in that. There is a fundamental aspect, and that it's the combination of illiquidity and air gaps combined with insolvency is what causes sustained vol and that i that is the missing component that i think that people see in this that don't always put it together i think a lot of the times when people come from purely a derivatives world you guys you guys see the ent- entire picture they it's like hammer to nail there's not that there's not that framework that is like if you're a hammer everything's a nail but there's a bigger world out there and you know hey when when the um, when the federal reserve quite possibly illegally um, creates a... Uh, a bid for high-yield bonds. Yeah. yeah, creates a bid for high-yield bonds outside of its mandate, which is inherently a, a short volatility play. You know, that has a fundamental impact that overrides anything Who's going to sue are. the Fed? <laughs> In the DOJ, okay?
0: <laughs> the Bitcoiners. Bitcoiners are going
2: to sue the Fed. I, no, I think the um, secret here really is what's your risk limit? That's the key. What's your risk limit? And I would suspect that... Uh, a Citadel or Susquehanna have a different risk limit uh, than a hedge fund does and a Wall Street firm has a different risk limit that so really, there there's hedge funds out there, certain ones out there we know who they are, where the individual pods and they have very tight stops and you hit that stop and you're fired, uh, that's gonna make you do something well before someone else has a longer-term yeah. business horizon. So that's the guy you care about. And 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 and, and you know, you know Michael, you're always talking about passive investing and when will that, you know. Not turn and become net sellers versus net buyers. Well, we don't know when that number is, but there's a risk. There's a risk limit, a stop for for even them. And, and have we gotten there? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Probably not. Um, but I, I think you got to recognize that. I, I, I think trying to go pick out the strikes for the longs and shorts are is kind of you know a fool's errand.
0: So. Well, I, so there is a very mechanical aspect to, to what Chris is highlighting, right? Which is that there is the dealer community. The dealer community is a net creator of options. So in the same way that you're describing- Both these, ways. Uh, much less so on the, on, on this, they, they are net sellers of options, which means they have to synthetically create it through Delta hedging, right? They're always going to be net short options because the ability to actually match on, on an exchange when you have the single stock dynamics, for example- sure?
2: Kind of think, I kind of think of the net buyers of short-date options. That's why you have the term surface uh, going down so hard, is because you have the large systematic funds selling one-month vol every day, day in, day out. That's why you have the, the term slope. One-day vol well now. If, 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 <laughs> if, if, if the street was a net seller of vol, the term surface would be, would be, would be the opposite direction,
0: right? I don't think that's a, so. I, I don't I think, think one-month so...
2: sellers evolve from the systematic hedge funds who you know who they are and you have systematic buyers of all the six-month and one-year space being the guys who have to buy it like insurance companies. And that's why you get this term slope going down, so there's various products that are trying to reap and capture that fundamental uh, te- technical roll-down um, that you have. It's a, it's a very steep roll-down, and that's from you have massive selling of one-month massive buying of six-month and one-year.
1: It's flat. It's
2: well, it flattens because, because you, you end up I'm get really geeky over here. It flattens because the, the, the forward always has to go to you know, 20, which is the long-term you know, VIX number. So, if, I mean, the, for, for, the forwards will, will invariably point towards the long-term average of something uh, if it's a mean reverting process, which, which vol is. I mean, but that's no, one of the things box. we've
0: actually seen, and this goes back to you know, the change in tone that's occurred since 2018. I actually was just having a conversation with Institutional Shareholder Services about this and if you look at the implied one month correlation, for example, it's gone from six and change in 2017 and a you know, variance contract to your point, Harley, of the 20 and the forwards, a one year variance forward in 2017 would have cost you 17 and a half, right? So 17 and a half percent implied volatility going forward. Today, that number I think is 29.
2: Yeah, but you had 17, you had a VIX of 12. So the forward, was, the forward was pointing up towards 20.
0: Right, and, so, to, and today, to Chris's point, we actually have an inverted surface where spot today, I think is 28, and the forward is maybe 28, 29, almost perfectly flat. If I go back a week ago, it was 35 versus 29, yeah. right? I, 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 and I just, on top of that, the correlation between SPX and ball and, and, uh, has broken down considerably.
1: I
2: think you know, everyone's circling around the big concept. You know, everyone keeps asking all of us, why is the move way so high, the move is the VIX for bonds, and versus, the, move, the VIX, which is you know relatively low in the context of what's going on, and the answer is short dated options, one month, two month options on highly liquid risk instruments, stocks, bonds, FX, commodities, tends to trade eight to twelve percent over realized forever, and that's why you have these systematic hedge funds coming in and selling one month ball and delta hedging either at two o'clock or four o'clock, wherever it might be, and. We have not been moving that much. Realized Vol is really not that great relative to a
1: 20% down move uh, on stocks. Um, yeah, but Vol is still trading at a, at a pretty big discount to it. And um, I mean, God, if you look at Vol which is Vol trading at a 60-point discount. You know, to you know, to uh, implied Vol is trading at a 60-point discount to realize. But you know, this gets sort of another concept, which I I don't think is like. I mean, there's so much talk about positioning and, and all these other aspects, but the impact of stagflation on vol itself. And you know, when you do like a vol fit model, you know, the, there's all this academic literature, you know, as you guys well know, the Gatherall stuff, and you get you got the jump factor, but then there's like a, a correlation between vol and all this, all this complexity. But one of the things that people forget about is the persistence of vol. And the uh, vol persistence versus vol jump. And these are two very, very different things. And if you go back into the 19, if you go back to 2008, where VIX stayed over, uh, over 30 for what was, I think, almost nine months, I think, or seven to nine months, um, versus what happened in March of 2020, where it stayed above 30 for like a month and a half. If you go back to the 1970s, during that stagflationary era. We don't have implied vol, but you can look at realized volatility. Realized volatility stayed elevated for a long period of time, but you didn't get these super spikes. Mm -hmm. So I think think the framework, which is really interesting, if we take a step back and not look at it from a technical standpoint, but just from a macro standpoint, inflation um, and, and stagflation can suppress Realize volatility on a because on you're looking at the dynamic of nominal to real and it's actually serving as a volatility suppressant in equities. That volatility is Transmortified to things like commodities and to things like gold and to rates. But the other aspect is in a stagflationary environment, you don't have the Fed reaction function. So. Naturally, what's going to occur is that you're going to have not as many super spikes, but there's not going to be the fast mean reversion. You have lower vol jump factor and higher vol persistence. And I find it interesting. It's, it's too early to sit back and say you know, whether or not this is a sea change right now. But it's interesting that as we are now in a negative real-rate stagflationary type of environment, at least for the time being, we are seeing that 70s-style persistence of vol without the super spikes emerge. If that's true, then that means an entire generation of vol models are miscalibrated, (laughs) which is really interesting, unless we go back to a deflationary shock and i know we talked a lot about that on the yeah. panel yesterday, yesterday. Well, this
0: is so this is one of the things so a, cu- a couple of points that I would, would make very quickly. One is um, at least when i look at the realized volatility, we absolutely are seeing it at, at relatively high levels. Um, relative to a 20% drawdown or an official bear market, probably not, but we actually haven't had the recession yet either, right? Which yeah. is typically what would accompanies that. So there's a lot of uncertainty around the individual. The other thing, and I think this hits to the stagflation, right? So as, as you know, I'm a longtime critic of the idea that the 1970s were stagflation for the very simple reason that there was no stag, right? Like there was flation, but there was no stagnation. The economy actually grew remarkably well. We had multiple recessions during the decade, and yet we still created more jobs in the 1970s than we ever have in the US history, right? So like the ability to disregard that and call the, the economy stagnant just feels completely absurd to me, right? This time around we may actually have stagflation, right Where the uncertainties associated with the supply chains create the need to continually reinvest and change those supply chains in ways that have unpredictable relationship to costs at the same time that the economy itself is growing much more slowly, right? The labor force growth is dramatically reduced. There is no impact of women entering the labor force for the first time in size, et cetera. right. We're just not seeing those elements kick in. So I like I agree with you. The other thing that I would highlight about the inflation dynamic, though, is, is that particularly when you have a period like the 1970s, where there was really extraordinary amounts of growth, you didn't have, and it was widespread, right? Because it was, everybody needed the commodities, everybody, the housing starts were near the highest levels in history. I mean, crazily enough, housing starts were higher then, right? With half the population than we have today, right? I mean, that's like, if nothing else blows people's mind, like, you know, come on, like, that's a huge deal that we had more housing starts in the 1970s than we had today. Better demographics. Dramatically (laughs) better demographics, right? Um, So when when we think through that dynamic, one of the things I would highlight with inflation is, is that there's this idea that inflation is this monolithic entity, right? That it's, you know, we've got inflation, right? Well, that means something different if it's Isolated in lumber, or if it's isolated in energy, or if it's you know isolated in different things versus a very broad pattern, and I would just highlight that along that spectrum, you can this time around we could very easily have companies fail, and we're seeing this right. We're beginning to see the first emergencies of bankruptcies as companies that have bankruptcies shutting down, you know, um, uh, for labor force reductions, etc. As companies are coming to the reality of like, well, the hyperstimulation that we received 18 months ago is gone and we're low on the consumer's discretionary budget, right? Peloton, for example, right? Um, Nobody needs one anymore. And there's plenty of used ones out there, right? Um, So you, you end up in this situation where a very wide range of outcomes can occur, whereas in a broad growth environment like the 1970s, I I think I agree with that. But What we haven't seen until very recently, and I think this is part of the reason we've had such a disconnect, is there's been a hidden bear market, right? So, you know, absolutely, we have seen, you know, the the pandemic and the venture, you know, the pseudo venture capital, the, you know, late stage growth companies that went public through SPACs, et cetera. This has just been unmitigated disasters. The venture capital index is down 60%, for example, right? ARC so is back to its pre-pandemic. Arc, ARC is now underperforming the SP, not even on an asset weighted basis, but in absolute terms, right? Exactly. And so you know you have these characteristics that are suggesting that this bear market was much worse than the headline would actually suggest. And if you look at those individual stocks and you look at the individual volatilities, I would suggest that they were they they were very, very they they, they are indicating much more distress. Um, but I mean, it's just exactly. not an Apple and Microsoft and everything else. And yes, they're down. Yes, we potentially should really be paying attention to them, because that could very easily be the next layer. So leg. you're
2: describing that the economy has become an oligopoly?
0: Well, it's, it, it, you know, so Peter Atwater has the phrase, the, the, the K-shaped recovery, right, which is basically it goes off in two different directions. And it does feel that there is an element of have and have-nots that exists right now, right? And... We've seen, you know, retailer inventories are now well above the pre-pandemic levels. We've quote-unquote solved that. The problem is, they don't have what people necessarily want. People want to show up for groceries at this point. Yeah. You know, you're hearing this from Walmart and Target that people want to show up for groceries, and they have, you know, decorative cushions, right? Which you know, your you saying?
2: That co- the stock market has already priced in a recession, theoretically.
0: I I think it's very hard to know what we've priced in. If if your spruce
2: 490 is down whatever it is, 30%, and the rest are down 10%, then it's what the buy stocks. Well, we're
0: we're, we're on the opposite side, right? I mean, if you actually look at the breadth indicators, the breadth indicators started to turn negative in late 2020 and became extraordinarily extreme as we looked at the start of this year, right? It wasn't until January, basically, very beginning of January 2022, that you started to see the leaders taken out in shock right i mean apple was fine microsoft was fine and now they're not and that's really what we're seeing make up the indices in this bear market that we're experiencing now that it's making through but if you were an investor in arc or you were an investor in you know a tiger cub or anyone else who has ironically followed through that no, I, i'm actually surprised by the way that nobody has kind of focused on this dynamic of tiger shutting down in March of 2000 because they were locked into value and now blowing up on the other side because they became momentum growth investors. It's, it's pretty it's, it's pretty shocking. Actually. It is pretty shocking. Um, it's interesting
1: how little is made about, you know, you hear so much in the VC community about innovation, innovation, innovation. And I mean, maybe, I guess I, maybe I'm silly, but I, I just, I just look at tech as an interest rate play. It's sort of like, okay, you know, at 0% rates, you can blitz scale something to infinity, and maybe that's the way to, you know, that's where value is. But at, you know, at a at a higher interest rate, why would I why would I sit there and finance something um, at that level? Like it, to me, it should move in accordance with rates. Well,
2: all the Fang stocks are basically seventy year bonds. I mean, we know that Amazon will make a yeah. trillion dollars in thirty years. Well, The question is, what's the discount to bring that trillion dollars back that's, to today? That's that's a much
0: more eloquent
1: way of. I was trying to get that out of my system, but it was much more eloquent. So, so,
0: so this is actually an area, though, that I think I may pretty strongly disagree with you guys on, right? So, I, like, I understand the theory of what Harley is saying, but it's but tech stocks are not actually thirty-year bonds, right, or seventy-year bonds. We don't actually know what cash is going to be returned to us in Amazon in thirty years. The company didn't exist thirty years ago, right? Just outside of that. And now we're looking at a situation where, yes, it feels like it's absolutely certain that Amazon's going to be there. But I I can paint a picture that says Amazon's replaced, right? There's no reason Amazon has to be sitting there. And so you have to have that inherent uncertainty, right? I mean, equities have a cone of possibilities that expands ad infinitum. The point of maximum uncertainty is always where you sell it. Right, whereas bonds are very, very different. They effectively look like and I always have to specify this for international audiences, but they look like an American football. Right? High quality bond effectively converges at par at maturity. Right. So and, and we see like if you own a bond fund, it has different characteristics. But if you own individual bonds, as long as the credit's okay, you know what that's worth.
2: No, but the, all stocks have, have the EPS and then the discount factor, the PE. Um, it's just the Fang stocks is 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 much more backloaded. So they're more impacted by rate, right?
0: I, see, I don't think that's right, though.
2: I mean, a, a FANG stock is more like a zero-coupon bond where you get paid at the very end as opposed to a cash flow along the way.
0: But the stocks that you're talking about, right? And so the, I, like, I agree with that to characterize they the dollar. They performed that bonds. way, haven't
1: they? Not really. Not really? I kind of think so. Although what's, what's interesting about it, they, I mean, they have performed that way
0: Recently, yeah. but
1: actually, if you look at it in the '90s, that was actually. The- oh no, yeah. no they, they weren't. They yeah. weren't the same companies. But, same but companies.
0: even yeah. you don't have to go back that far. If you look at them from 2015 to 2019, right? Rates rose, and they outperformed.
2: So uh, I'm just talking recently in the last five years, three years, you know, with the Fed having taken rates down to zero, then kind of back up again. I think. I think another interesting spin, though, is that you know we're all, uh, Michael, we're all talking about about the correlation of stocks to bonds. And if, if um, there's a lot of, I won't say research, I'll say, I'll say very good-looking charts that indicate a correlation where if inflation gets above 2.5 or, or rates above 4.5, I'm talking long rates now, that the correlation stocks, the bond flips. And, and the question I really have is, is it the inflation or is it the rate that matters? Because what I'm thinking about right now is, because I feel very comfortable if something gets to, you know, above those levels, you'll see stocks and bonds go down together, like they did March 2020 or December eighteen, um, and it'll be, you know, financial Armageddon, 60-40 goes, to, goes into the tank and risk parity goes to negative. Well, I mean, we've seen that, right? But the, what happens, what if I give you this as an example? That we have inflation at six, okay, and we have bonds at three, does the correlation follow the, the inflation number or the rate number? And I'm thinking more and more that maybe the answer is the rate number, not inflation, because PE should be driven by you know, a, a discounted cash flow. We discount them at, at rates, not at inflation. As a matter of fact, a, a, a rate of three and inflation of six, I find is pretty darn bullish for bonds, I for, for, for stocks, because EPS goes up, because by definition, if you have inflation of six, you're raising prices, so therefore nominal earnings go up, you're discounting them at a low rate. That's that's stock bullish, isn't it? And that means this correlation idea is out the window
1: of of, of being fearful. You know, Harley. It's interesting because I, you know, I, um, and I mean, it's a, you bring up a really fascinating point. Uh, in 2015, I wrote this paper that was kind of a long-winded paper, but I, I looked at these relationships going back, um, got 100 years. And the thing that I really found that drove the correlation breakdown was actually. Uh, the volatility of inflation. Not inflation, but the volatility of inflation. And if you saw, if you, whenever when you just measure the statistical ball of inflation, where it's moving up or down to any degree, just moving a, a lot, you see that correlation break down his, historically over 100 years. And it's, it's kind of, a, I think there's a chart in that paper a long time ago, but it's kind of shocking. But um, that's just empirical. I mean, I, I, I try to... Think yeah, through but, what you're but, saying. But, so,
2: since, since inflation really can't be negative, maybe in theory it could sometimes, but it means you only get high vol when you get high inflation because it's got to move. I mean, it has to go up, this, go back down again. So, uh-huh. it's kind of like the same thing. High inflation and high volatility go together. Well, you can have deflationary big shocks, especially when. Seems... Yeah, but you're coming from a high to a, back to back to low. You're not <laughs> yeah. going negative, you know. So, by definition, you can only get vol when it's, when it's high. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I've been, you know, really concerned because I, I, I've, I've weaved together a story of investing of how it should go. And, 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 and you know Mike and I have chatted back and forth about inflation. He's crying his eyes out now, um, as long as a few other of our guests. Um, but maybe being right on inflation is actually meaningless to the investment process if rates don't go with it. And in the past, we've, all the charts we've seen, you see inflation and rates kind of go together, but this time they're breaking apart. And as a public policy concept, Negative real rates are great. The Fed would love the idea of high inflation to devalue the debt we have, the nominal debt we have, and then have negative real rates as an economic impulse to, you know, to feed the machine, to feed growth and investment. I mean, a negative three strikes me as being the Fed's ideal scenario.
1: I mean, ironically-, ironically Negative three real, sorry, negative three real. Yeah, I, I mean, ironically, the real world is measured by inflation. But our, I mean, if we go back to the concept of, of, of a tech stock being a zero-coupon bond, whether one believes it or not, what we do know is the discount rate is the rate. It's, it's the interest rate, not the inflation rate. The and,
2: rate yeah. I mean, yeah. does Mike, does, does a negative three real for the next three years, does that bother you? I mean, does that, that accentuate any of your ideas?
0: No, I, I mean, that actually feels to me like the likely outcome of what we're experiencing, right? So like to me, I don't think that the, le- you, you know, you've shared charts from Gerald Minack and others, that highlight this idea that if you know the level of rates or if level of inflation gets to four and a half that XYZ flips, right? I don't think that's I don't agree with that. One, because I think that there's just a huge data issue, right? We basically have one data series that shows inflation going up into the nineteen seventies and then coming down and now we have another spike and so we naturally take that spike and project it back onto the other. I don't think that necessarily has to be true at all. I think you bring up the important point, which is I would argue it's actually the Fed's reaction function. Right, so if the Fed feels bound by the inflation, as they now do, having adopted the term um, transitory and not specified what they meant by transitory, right? So I kind of knew what they meant by
2: transitory. Man. I don't
0: think I don't think we have any idea because they did not actually tell us, right? I think what actually is is part of the challenge is that people hear transitory and they're like, okay, so next week, right? It's going to retreat next week. That's just not a realistic appraisal of it, but it got to the point where the Fed had to abandon that for political reasons. It just wasn't acceptable, right? To sit well, there that and, wasn't true. Again, if you define transitory as there's a two-year inf- you know, flux, then that tells you something. If by the end of 2022, we don't see a return to sub 3% inflation, I'll be wrong, right? Uh, I,
2: thi- I think the common parlance was in September, October, November of last year, transitory meant March, April of this year. That's what everyone thought it meant. Now, maybe you didn't mean that when you said it, and all our guests didn't mean when they said it, but that was the idea of transitory. It wasn't three years from now.
1: I, I, I always I always define transitory as we have no idea what we're doing, and we're just making this up as we go along. That's <laughs> well, kind of like, that's how I've looked at that word, as the way they've used it. So.
0: Well, it, it, it does feel that way, right? Because they've effectively taken the adage of, you know, a stop clock is right twice a day, and they've, unfortunately looked at the clock and like, oh, my God, it's six hours behind. Let's change the clock. Right. You know, <laughs> let's start it again. Right. Um, and so now, of course, they're trapped in a narrative that says we see no signs. Growth is slowing and everyone else is looking around going, what in the world are you people looking at? Right. They're destroying their credibility on a daily basis. And in a weird way, I mean, I, I you know, I would, I would point this out that they're also kind of getting what they wanted. Financial wait, conditions wait, wait, wait. are tightening. Things are slowing. I mean, you know, it's it, They it's, haven't had to hike rates that we much. We had six
2: and a half percent positive nominal GDP. Yep. The headline was negative one and change, but we had positive six and change. Okay, the real big, not real, the number, the real economy. Okay, that's not that's that's not you know a depression or a recession, per se. I guess you could you could define it as being real was negative one and change. If we get another quarter of that, then in, in theory we've had a we're in a recession. But I mean, you know, if, if, if the economy, nominally, is growing at 6.5, I wouldn't call that a bad result. How, I think, how I think, is it I think
0: you're, Just very quickly, I think you're mixing your inflation metrics there, though, because GDP deflator was like five, six. So it would have been, if you have minus 1.6, real I think real if you go to
2: Bloomberg growth. and type in, uh, type in nominal GDP, it'll say 6.3.
0: Oh, well, that, all right, that makes sense. OK, that, that's correct. When you get 5% inflation, if
1: they can thread that needle, I mean, they say they want to, but you get 5% for a couple years, you solve your corporate debt problem, you solve your pension problem. We have a debt crisis, and you solve debt by default or inflate, and inflation is slow motion default. Yeah. So if you, like, this gets interesting because, you know, uh, I, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll use this to bring this into that point, but, um, you know, I, we, we met almost 10 years ago yeah. to this, almost 10 years ago to the day, yeah, yeah. yeah um, on a paper that I wrote. Um, that talked about, there was a graphic that showed all the ships representing different countries. Uh, and they're sailing through this narrow strait. And on one side of that strait is the waterfall of deflation. On the other side of that strait is the hellfire of inflation. And the idea being is that uh, policymakers are trying to sail through this strait, and trying to avoid the waterfall of deflation can lead you to the hellfire of inflation. And every policy mistake, that strait gets narrower and narrower. And now it is so narrow. Because if they get 5% inflation a year, we have the highest corporate debt to GDP, some of the highest uh, government deficits uh, outside of war in history, and you, you get 5% inflation a year, you sail through that straight perfectly. You can cut your debt by a third over five years, life is good, no problemo. You get, if you begin to get upwards of 8 10% consistently, what ends up happening is that When corporate bonds have to roll, they currently they have the highest uh, duration in history right now of about five. But if if corporate bond yields go back up to where they were, just in the mid two thousands, then thirty to fifty percent of corporate profits will have to go to debt service alone. So if At this point, they are rising, but most of that rise has been based on duration. The majority of that's been based on duration, not credit spread, not credit risk. But if you get another pump up of 200, 300 basis points in corporate yields, you have something that is analogous in the corporate world to the arm crisis that led to the mortgage crisis. So at the same time, if you get inflation too low, you've got a whole other set of of problems that we've experienced. So they've got to thread this needle and to this point if they run too hot to inflation it runs us right back into a major deflationary crisis and solvency crisis and you know by the way if rates go back up if corporate bond yields go back up to the where the where where they were in the 1970s 100% of corporate profits go to debt service, to debt service. and and as you stated eloquently before that that's a very optimistic stance, because it's assuming that these companies will be able to roll their debt. I'd like well, to go and say one thing, though. That paper that Chris wrote is the
2: best paper you ever put out. I think it's genius. Everyone should go look up and read it. I will say also that the picture, I didn't know that's what it meant. I thought it was it was pre-Renaissance Catholic Church believing in a flat earth, <laughs> and they're falling off the flat earth. I didn't realize it actually meant that. So, <laughs> I well, a what, what
0: you described at that time period is actually, I mean, the way you and I bonded on that was your description of a bull market in fear, right? And people forget that at that point in time, and it was almost exactly 10 years ago to the day, right? It was June 4th, 2020, 2012, that the long-dated variance contracts peaked in the the mid-40s, right? So, I mean, just to put this in perspective, 10 years ago today, if you had been making a bet on what the long-term volatility in the equity markets was supposed to be, the street was telling you it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, 35 to forty-five percent every single day, right? Now, Chris and I both looked at that and were like, "If that's true, everybody should just go home, right? Because the whole thing is completely uninvestable for the next ten years. To have every single day be basically the three days after 9-11 is completely insane. That like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever." No, but the skew
2: also what he highlighted, which was more interesting to me.
0: Well, there was no bid for the upside, right? So, again, that was part of the reason, and you were on these trades as well, where it was like, look, you know, you can effectively go long the stock market for free if you're willing to sell the insurance that the market's not going to fall by 50% over the next two years, right? Like, so, so those were the, the um, that was the characteristics that existed at that point in time. Today, as we're starting to push, and I mentioned earlier, longer dated variance contracts, et cetera, one, there's not that, like they just have never been that liquid again, right? The institutions largely stepped out of that space. There's just not a lot of demand for the 10 year variance contract or even the five year variance contract. The restructuring of the variable annuity space has largely been completed. So that bid is gone, the demand is gone from there. But now we're looking at a situation where the high levels of implied volatility even though they are not outrageous versus where we are in history, are creating conditions where people basically have to decide, I'm going to go shorter and shorter dated on my options. And I think this is part of what Chris was referring to earlier, because we see it at Simplify, right? I mean, we have to manage our hedges. And if you're running a shorter dated hedge a shorter tenor option, the decay on that is so rapid that you effectively have to monetize. Right. You're forced to say, okay, we got a four or 5% sell-off. We're now going to take those positions off. right? And we're going to roll into the next position, et cetera. That is constantly releasing the pressure on the dealers from that negative gamma component. Now, we've seen elevated volatility on, on a year-to-day basis. It's been completely consistent, not at all unusual relative to other periods of negative gamma. So I do think that there are meaningful components associated with the dealer behaviors in the positive gamma versus negative gamma sort of routine. But as you were alluding to before, and I think a lot of people, even in the options space, tend to miss this dynamic. The cure for um, gamma is high implied vol, right? It's in the denominator. So you know, ultimately, like we have created a system where people desperately want to hedge. We're all aware of the risks. It's resulting in the cost of hedging being extraordinarily high, and people are being forced into shorter stuff. If
2: with- you're worried about systemic risk, who would you rather have holding the short gamma? Citadel, Susquehanna, or retail, or some tight stop hedge fund? I I, I think I know who the answer is, you know?
0: Well, so I I think it depends, right? So part of the- I think it depends because I think part of the dynamic is, is that Citadel and Susquehanna, exactly as you're saying, they're not actually holding it. They're delta hedging. Yes. So there's a systemic risk that exists, that Chris is referring to, which is effectively gap risk, jump risk, the fact that the market suddenly become discontinuous, right? that is what co- that's what scares the hell out of dealers who are okay. using delta they and step back they just step out say, of the market and that's I'm part not. of the that's part of the other picture that we have which is the liquidity in the market just doesn't exist i mean you and i were able i mean Harley, you and i were able to do trades of size that doesn't just reflect the different asset bases that we were dealing with but the depth of the markets in vol space in 2011 2012 as crazy as it sounds it was so much deeper and so much bigger than it is today it's pretty scary actually it's how astonishing bad
3: the liquidity has
0: it. it is astonishing yeah. i mean i wrote a paper in in 2020 about this issue of liquidity in the s&p for example and highlighted that we'd gone from an environment in 2012 where you could do a billion dollar trade and you'd move the s&p a tick and, and in uh, march 2020 that number had dropped to a million dollars you would move the s&p a tick. Now we're right back there. All right? I mean, without COVID, we've gotten back down to those levels and it really is. It feels like that's just a function of there's actually not that much competition for the individual dealers. It's pretty interesting to sort of see these I think
1: it was January 24th where you have that you know, you have a like 4% gap down and a 4% gap like you know, the next this X. Is, yeah, yeah, this is, is... Well, actually intraday, yeah. It's yeah. just the same day. It's just like, boy, I mean, this is
0: we saw we we saw this on Tuesday of this week. Right? I mean, just to, to date the timing on this, um,
2: which does not hit the uh, the, uh,
1: the
0: the realized yeah. the, the, the database
2: <laughs> does not hit realized. The four yeah. to four uh, it was zero vol.
1: Yeah, that's right. You have an eight percent intraday move, and it's like zero vol <laughs> on the realized vol. <laughs> And, and that's databases. a, so,
0: so I actually just ran a calculation on this. If you actually look at effectively the miles traveled, right? And you can't do this through history because we don't have the, at least not easily available, we don't have the intraday moves going back over long periods of time. We didn't even start to get, people forget this or so, we didn't even start to get you know published open, low, high, close data until like 1983 yeah, on the right. S&P 500, right? So I always want to remind people that the actual data sets that we have are vanishingly small in the greater scheme of things, right? So we just don't know that much. But part of what we're actually seeing right now is the gap between the intraday volatility measures and the realized volatility on a close-to-close basis is among the largest it's ever been in history as well. It also interesting, like this year,
1: like what has worked this year? I mean, this, this would be shocking to people, but like uh, what would be, gamma scalping has actually done well as of late and that concept you know to explain to an audience it's inherently a mean reversionary type of strategy when you're gamma scalping so in one aspect you know where you're you know gamma scalping and your short Vega your short vol and your gamma scalping that has actually performed pretty well this year and I would not necessarily call that a kind of long crisis alpha type of no player. it's it's, yeah. it's inherently
0: the same monetization that we're talking about right you're saying okay market is down today i expect it to be up tomorrow yeah right? that's right effectively yeah. what's happening or it's noon and the market is down by 4 p.m i expect it to be flat right so we're seeing this and again for me it comes down to and, and i certainly experienced this at simplify with the products that were actively involved in hedging like we are constantly being forced into shorter dated hedges which means the decay associated with them, and the sensitivity, the gamma component to them is much higher than it's been in in yeah. our uh, you know traditional models. If you're if you're
1: if you're working with long ball, like simply so like there's almost you, no gamma. There's yeah. So you're either forced into a shorter dynamic. You're either I mean what what you're going to have to do to perform is either you're forced to a shorter shorter dynamic. You're going to have to go through other volatility transmission act. Uh, mechanisms, meaning that other asset classes where vol is being, which presented. goes back to
0: some of the things that have worked, right? We've talked about rate vol and FX vol have been areas that have emerged as heroes in the long vol space relative to to what we're seeing in equities.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that's worked very well um, traditionally as a cost-effective vol hedge is what I would call vol gamma or vol trend. Like, like in many ways, you play vol the way that a C, the way a CTA or a commodity trend advisor would play. Uh, commodities, you trade vol in that same capacity. That's something, but that has not performed. It hasn't done badly. It hasn't performed at all this year. Like you, you, you haven't had any. The very fact that gamma skeleton isn't working, you haven't had any vol gamma to play off of, so uh, or vol trend to play off of. Um, so it's very, it's a very frustrating.
0: Yeah, this is. A, this, I mean, I'll, I'll be. We and again, we've talked about this. Like this is by far the hardest market. To hedge effectively, that I have encountered, um, and I realize that sounds. I would insane. push back
2: and say it's never different this time. Everyone always thinks whatever happens to them today is the worst, the most, the biggest, the best. It's all happened before. Every single crisis we have, everyone always says this is the worst, and it's never different this time. We have not invented tragedy here. Okay, we just want to feel like it's the worst, so we feel better. But well, it's it's not. really
1: frustrating. Oh, Very on, frustrating environment.
2: I, I, I've been there long enough to tell you. It's always the same, and it always feels bad when it happens. God, he's smug when his product's working.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just totally smug. He does have some bragging rights on yeah, it, But that goes back to the point. It's the, it's it's the, the other asset, asset class, class ball, the transmutation Which, again, ball. Harley, you talked about, it's,
0: right? I mean, you, like this was intentional in your creation of interest rate hedging strategies was somebody has to create something that allows people to say, what if the relationship between rates and equities breaks down? Right, and so like that was, it was a brilliant insight, and I, I will 100% accede to that. Thank you. Well, let's just pull the lens back for a second before
2: the clock runs out. I'm trying to wrestle with right now is, usually when the Fed starts to hike, for whatever the reason it might be, um, you don't get the flattening until the second-to-last hike. That's history. Um, maybe it's different this time. It seems, we, what, how do we reconcile what's going on right now where the curve is rotating um, almost before the Fed even started hiking
0: right. not I mean, almost absolutely yeah. the minute they started indicating that they were going to the curve began to flatten dramatically
2: so I mean does does I mean does that mean I mean I, I guess you would argue and maybe you're right we're already in a recession and and the, and the bond market has got this thing pegged that we're in the recession and we're gonna flip right now um, uh, is that the answer here, that, that we're in a recession? And if that's the case, then the stock, it pulled back 20.1% and time to buy them. And, and, and bonds, like the curve's going to flatten at two and a half, three, and there you have it. The cycle's already done before you before even woke up. Or I would push back and say, perhaps the Fed's heavy hand of holding down rates um, has, that's where it's been. And my idea is, I, I mean, I'm at the poker table. I want to turn one more card over, which is what happens when we actually start draining liquidity. Uh, there's a great chart that we've all seen of um, the last decade of the four main central banks pumping in, I don't know, 20-odd trillion dollars, and stocks and bonds going up tick for tick with it. Maybe it's cause, maybe it's correlation, whatever. But if they actually drain the pond of a couple trillion bucks, um, theoretically, we should go back down again, stocks and bonds. Um, where are you in that, Mike and, and, and Chris?
1: I would I would agree. <laughs> I would agree with that thesis. Well Mike, you wouldn't because
2: you'd say we're in a recession right now and therefore bonds and stocks are kind of okay. We've priced it in and
0: I think bonds I, I so my bias is is that bonds are telling you that, that we've hit terminal rate. Um, somewhere in the three percent range on, on quote unquote risk-free rates, I don't think the US economy can handle higher than that. And this goes back to my you know, uh, argument around the transitory characteristics of inflation. We just don't have the underlying characteristics that we had in the 1970s where the number of households, the number of individuals that need stuff is expanding dramatically. We're seeing the exact opposite. In fact, we're seeing household formation start to move in reverse as you would expect with higher household prices. And suddenly people are saying, you know, millennials who lived with their parent with their parents. And as much as this is frustrating to people to hear, when you have 27% of your population living with their parents until they're 30 years old, they're not moving out. Many of those people will become Italians. They will live with their parents forever, right? And that's a solution. It is a way that society deals with things like much higher prices. Make price it Me Too power. Italy, you know, for that. What's up?
2: Make it Me Too in Italy.
0: Well, I know I've called this for years, and I mean you can go back and you can listen to things that I talked about 10 years ago, right? The Italianization of America is absolutely happening. Geographic mobility has collapsed. Population growth has collapsed. Household formation has yeah. collapsed on a relative basis. People are living with their parents longer and longer and longer. Why? Because the single greatest resource that a parent can offer is, one, paying for your college education, and two, giving you free housing. Right, And the minute you have that, you've got extraordinary flexibility, which is why places like Italy can handle 30% unemployment rates. We, we even had our own Mussolini. We even had our own Mussolini. And That's it's a little terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we just unfortunately... Just the audience. Yeah. Well, this is a great reminder. Of how oh, Mussolini was beloved. Together. He, he, he was, was, he was, yeah. And, and, until he was put on a meat hook, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> it, you know... The, the underlying component that I would just toss out from here is, <laughs> this is why we love getting together and talking. Like Harley started this out today. He so said, what the hell are we going to talk about? And the question is, how do we stop talking? So <laughs> I'm going to have to actually draw the limit here. Chris, this was absolutely fantastic. Was I love awesome having awesome you awesome. in. I wish we had a chance to talk more about you know the Dragon portfolio and some of the stuff you're doing uh, over in our business, but we're going to have to do this again soon. We'll do it again. All yeah.
3: Right? yeah.
1: Um, What I I love love about these talks is that there's like no preparation whatsoever. We have no no, idea. But this is, well, yeah, (laughs) it's
0: unfortunate. The unprofessional nature of the things we produce is very, very clear. But it is actually like this is what happens when we sit down and just talk casually. Yeah, it's it's like a real conversation. So so, anyway, Chris, thank you so much for joining
3: us. This is really awesome. Harley, I'm glad
0: you were able to be here as well. And thank you to EQD for having their event here in the Wynn in Las Vegas.
3: Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information, Informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes. And one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model and client's results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.